invite you to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Matthew chapter 18. We're picking up our our regular studies in in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, I want to read uh, the first uh, 14 verses. So Matthew 18. And you may remember that uh, Jesus is with his disciples in Capernaum. So 1724 says that. They came to Capernaum. And that's the last <coughs> uh, mention of a geographical location um, uh, before this passage. So verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 1 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he puts him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So, as I said, uh, the Lord Jesus is with his disciples in uh, Capernaum, which is in the region of Galilee. And uh, <clears throat> now this chapter, chapter 18, uh, covers the, the last, um, essentially the last, is the last chapter that deals with Jesus' Galilean ministry. And it actually consists uh, almost entirely of uh, words of Jesus. There there are only a couple of narrative uh, comments that Matthew makes. Uh, One in verse 1 where he says, at the time the the disciples who came to to Jesus saying, and then he goes on to speak about their question. And then in verse 21, Matthew also interjects and says, then Peter came up and said to him, and explains what Peter said. But But beyond those two little places, uh, the whole chapter is is the teaching of Jesus. It's like a, a final uh, discourse, a final sermon, if you like, before 
um, uh, Jesus then turns his face uh, towards uh, uh, Judea uh, and and the south, and, and that happens in chapter nineteen, verse one. And uh, when we come to verses one to fourteen, uh, the one of the one of the common threads through this these verses is Jesus centering his teaching around children or little ones. Um, so, so in verse three. Um, Uh, Jesus uh, says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or verse 6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck, and so on. Uh, Verse 10, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. And verse 14, at the close of the passage, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So the common theme, little ones, children. Um, Now why why is that the case? Well, it's because Jesus has brought a child into the midst of this group of disciples. Uh, You see that uh, in verse 2. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And then he started to, to speak. And, and what Jesus is doing here is he is using a child as uh, an illustration. Uh, we don't know if it's a, a male or female child. The, the words, the Greek word is neuter. Uh, 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 nouns in, in Greek are gendered and, and this one's a neuter one. So we don't, it's just a child. Um, and the child is being used as an illustration. An illustration of what, you might ask? What an illustration of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And uh, and so, it, while we could apply some of this to children, uh, it has a more general application uh, to the little ones of God, if you like, the children of God. Um, so, it's about what it looks like uh, to be a disciple of of Jesus Christ. Now that's pretty relevant for us today, isn't it? Um, we need to have uh, crystal clarity about what it involves to become a Christian, or as Jesus puts it here, to enter the kingdom of heaven, and therefore what it means for such a person to uh, to be in relationship first, what it means in their relationship to sin, and then also their relationship to God. And so I've got four things I want to uh, draw your attention to as we think about this passage. Firstly, that entering the kingdom of heaven involves a humbling conversion. Entering the kingdom of heaven involves a humbling conversion. It involves a profound change of life. And we'll look at the kind of change that's uh, expected in this conversion. Secondly, I want to look at... uh, the need to avoid complacency about sin, sin in our lives. Um, becoming a Christian involves, uh, it changes how you view sin in your own life and also how you help others avoid sin in their lives. Then thirdly, I want to think about uh, how we, we need to realise what sin deserves And therefore, they need to be ruthless about cutting it out from our lives. And then finally, knowing 
we need to know how much our Heavenly Father values us as his children. And that's the point of the little parable at the end. First of all, the kingdom of heaven, entering the kingdom of heaven, involves a humbling conversion. And the disciples come up with this curious question in verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, uh, you know, when you think about questions and questions that people have, uh, they, they don't come out of a vacuum, do they? They come out of uh, often a set of assumptions that people have about the way that you currently see the world. And the, uh, uh, but sometimes there are gaps, and therefore the, the questions are all about filling in the gaps of the view that you have. And uh, uh, what's the, so what the question is, what is, a, what is the picture that these disciples might have about the kingdom of heaven that prompts this question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it seems to me that they have this uh, a view of the, uh, the kingdom of heaven as being something of a hierarchy. Um, and yes, they might put Jesus at the top of the hierarchy, but where does everybody else fit in, in this hierarchy? And I rather think that these disciples had an idea that they would have the prime spots. And that's what they were concerned about. And, it, and who's going to be really at the top next to Jesus? And in fact, if you look at the other gospel writers, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 37, you see that James and John are uh, asked explicitly to be able to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. Quite a bold thing, and much to the annoyance of the other ten disciples. Well, here Jesus doesn't answer that question uh, because their picture of the kingdom of heaven is all wrong. And to illustrate this, he brings a child into their midst and begins to talk about a more fundamental question. Not who will end up on top of the pile, but what kind of person gets into the pile at all. And that's a totally different question. You see, they had not got that straight, but it is the important question. How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? And if you get that clear, then you'll see that any question of who's at the top of the pyramid is actually irrelevant. This is an intensely relevant question to today, isn't it? Um, uh, you know, my experience of talking to people over a number of years in Solihull about the gospel is that is that many people think hierarchically about society, about and about uh, who's in and who's out in all kinds of uh, situations. And when it comes to God, people think about their uh, a hierarchy of moral performance. And you know, everybody thinks that they're high enough up that they're above the bar, as it were. And they're going to get in. God, God's going to look at them and think, well, well they're pretty cool. Um, I'm impressed. I'll have them, have that person. And, you know, they think that even though they may not, they're not really sure if God exists at, or that there is a kingdom of heaven at all. But if there is one, if there is a God, and if there is a kingdom, then I'll be there because I'm, you know, I'm pretty good. Well, that makes it a relevant question, isn't it, uh, uh, about 
What does it involve to be, to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Now, what's Jesus' point in bringing a child uh, into the group? Uh, And for that, you need to understand the place of children in the first century. Today, I think parents uh, and and society prioritise their children almost in everything. Uh, It may be that, uh, you know, parents have a tendency to idolise their children. Uh, They put their children before everything. Uh, And everything in society, I think, has to consider the children. Now, there's some good things about that, uh, but there's some concerning things about that. Um, Now, in the first century, that uh, that wasn't true. Uh, Children were pretty low in the pecking order. Um, To have many children was was a sign of great great blessing. Uh, You know, it was your welfare system. It was your pension. Uh, if you had lots of children, then your future was sorted. You would have somebody to look after you and look after your affairs. And uh, uh, But in day-to-day life, uh, when they were very young, children weren't very significant. Um, they were below everyone else. And uh, it's with this insignificant child in view of all the disciples that Jesus then begins to speak about the kingdom uh, of heaven And Jesus says two things that need to matter to these disciples if they are to enter the kingdom of heaven. The first thing is, there needs to be a turning in verse 3. Unless you turn. Unless you turn. There needs to be a turn. That's not a physical turn. It's not just burling on the spot. Um, What it means is, A complete change of life. A whole life change. Not just changing a few little things. But a whole change in the orientation of your life. A complete change. A root and branch change. A total 180 degree turnaround. Whatever the assumptions you have about the kingdom of heaven and your place in it. All of that prior to coming to this to Jesus uh, all of that needs to be completely overturned and friends you need to understand this people never simply get into the kingdom of heaven by default and they never just slide gently into it with little effect on their lives you see that's why the bible talks about a turning It talks about a conversion. It talks about new life instead of the old. It talks about becoming a new creature in Christ. It talks about undergoing a new birth. Everything becomes new in this turning. And so that before and after are two completely different things. So that's the first thing he says. There has to be a turning. But the second thing is, and the question is, what kind of change is it? And this is the second thing. This is what Jesus draws attention to in this child. That we must move from pride and arrogance, because remember the the disciples were thinking about their high place in the kingdom of heaven, to humbling 
to realizing that you are not great. Uh, in fact, you're the opposite. I'm the opposite. And you realize that you're a nobody, you're poor, you're weak, you're blind, you're deaf, you're crippled. Uh, even the Bible says you're dead when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're living but dead, if you like. And it, it really doesn't matter what you've achieved in life. You, know, you, you may have done great public service. You may have uh, accumulated a great pile. You may have started a great company that the world has known the world over. It really doesn't matter. None of that matters. It, your achievements in the eyes of others matter nothing when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. And you need to realize that you deserve nothing. Now, how does the humility of a child show itself? Well, in that situation, a child is completely helpless. Um, And a child exercises complete trust and dependency on the family and on the parents. And this is what it means to enter into the kingdom of heaven to realize what you are in relationship to God to have your eyes heavenward and to have absolute trust and complete dependence on God and Jesus is saying here no one can enter into the kingdom of heaven without that kind of life transformation This is what it really looks like to become a Christian and to have a place in the kingdom of heaven. And so as we come to this point, at the end of this first point, I need to ask you, do you have such a place in the kingdom of heaven? Have you come to that place where you realize you're nothing before God? That all you have in relationship to God is a cry a cry of dependency that you realize that you're nothing. Listen, I'm not asking you whether you're a nice person and do good works. I'm not even asking you whether you go to church or not. I'm asking you, have you undergone a transformation that has humbled you where you realize you're nothing before God? To the point where you can all, all you can do is look to him in complete trust and dependence this is the kind of person that has a place in the kingdom of heaven and that's what it looks like to be great and I think we can take it from this that everybody who trusts in God this way who's humbled like this and turns this way becomes great in the kingdom of heaven so that's the first thing a humbling conversion the second thing is is such a person avoids complacency about sin such a person now avoids complacency about sin now we live in a world that is marked by unrighteousness and rebellion against god uh, the god who made it that's what we mean by sin rebellion against god going against what god has said and what he has told us to do and temptation is the is the attempt to entice somebody into such sins of rebellion. 
So not only do people in the world sin, but being social beings, human beings like to get other people involved in their sins. Let's join in together. Let's uh, all sin together. Let's have a bit of fun. Because sinning is fun. And that's the, that's the nature of things, isn't it? In this world. Um, but the world is all... You need to understand this. The world is already condemned for such an attitude. And, and it actually comes out in, in verse 7. This word woe, woe to the world for temptations to sin. That word woe is not just a cry of alarm. Woe! <laughs> it's not that kind of woe. It's a, it's a cry of judgment. Woe to you. It's judgment. And Jesus is saying here, the world is judged for its sin and its temptations to sin. And it's for this reason, therefore, that if someone has been converted and humbled and so has entered into the kingdom of heaven, that then they begin to care about sin in their life. Uh, Not only that, but they begin to care about not doing anything that would lead someone else into sin. You see, to become a believer in Jesus Christ is never just a matter of you yourself changing in glorious isolation. It brings you into relationship with others who have undergone the same transformation. And and that relationship with others actually isn't optional. Unless you're on the moon or something, or Mars. But it's actually fundamental to being a Christian that you're brought into relationship with other Christians. And so important is it that your attitude to other children cannot be separated from your attitude to Jesus. Hence, Jesus says in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. If you receive your brothers and sisters, you receive Jesus. If you reject your brothers and sisters, you're rejecting Jesus. You can't be bothered with brothers and sisters. You can't be bothered with Jesus. Jesus is not happy about that. But what follows from that relationship then, um, in your relationship with other believers, is a carefulness about not leading others into sin or literally as it says here causing little ones to stumble Uh, and it's talking about moral failure and he's not just speaking about big public sins which we can all hide he's talking about the private ones too the secret ones the you know the the whisperings and the grumblings the the complaints the the greedy attitudes the the lack of self discipline all of these things that we kind of foist upon each other and 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 seek to get enlist affirmation for in ourselves by getting other people to agree with us um, these are all things that uh, Christians can be tempted to indulge in with other Christians. What's the effect of such behaviour? Well, we we know from other parts of Scripture that the effect of sin is to create a barrier between you and God, between the person and Jesus Christ. Let me quote you to a verse that 
uh, I've known since I, my earliest days as a Christian, Isaiah 59 verse 2, where God says to his people, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. And it's because of that, Jesus says these startling words in verse 6, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Isn't that shocking? But that's the seriousness with which we need to take sin and, and, and the sins, the ways in which we try and enlist others in our sins. It'd be better if you were drowned. Well, there's Jesus being direct, as usual. And we need to be spoken to directly sometimes, don't we? Jesus speaks clarity to us. So I say to you today, if you're, are you a Christian today? But there are habits and attitudes, maybe even big sins that you're foisting on others that are close to you and you're expecting them to join in. Uh, maybe husbands with their wives or vice versa, wives with your husbands or in your friendships, those secret conversations that you want to enlist your friends into, into your sins. And yes, taking a literal reading of this passage, parents with their children, where parents are in secret in their homes, lead their children to sin. These are serious questions. May we be challenged by them. And I think it would help if we had a good understanding of what our sin truly deserves. And that brings us to the third point, to realise what our sin truly deserves. And this comes out in verses 8 and 9. What does sin deserve? Well, at the end of verse 8, it says eternal fire. Or at the end of verse 9, the fire of hell. And here Jesus is speaking. You may remember that uh, there are two words that are often translated as hell. One is Hades, which is the place of the dead. So it's just like the grave. Uh, but then there's another word, Gehenna, which is the place of ultimate judgment. And it's that second word that Jesus uses here, the place of everlasting judgment, um, the place of fire. Now, of course, people don't like be, uh, people like me talking about, about hell, eternal judgment. But Jesus spoke about it. And of all the people in the New Testament, uh, Jesus, above all people, spoke about hell the most. Uh, people like to say, oh, it's so negative. Uh, uh, and, and you can't scare people into heaven. Well, take those arguments up with Jesus. Jesus did it. Uh, and we need to pay attention. Jesus meant it. And it's a reality, you see, that we need to know about. And knowing it as Christians, we need to be ruthless, therefore, about dealing with sin in our lives. Now, sin starts in the heart, but it comes out through the body. We've seen that in earlier chapters. Uh, but here we see uh, in verse 8, um, it comes out through the hand, uh, the hand that does things. Or um, what you believe, you know, it comes out through your fingertips, we often say. Um, you can't separate what you believe from what you do. Uh, or again in verse 8, your foot. You know, your, f your foot 
takes you to places of sins to do go and do sinful things uh, or your eye your in verse uh, in verse 9 uh, that allows you to indulge in sin as you feed on what you see uh, so the hand the feet the eyes uh, they co- uh, collaborate in leading you into sin now i think in this passage jesus is not advocating chopping off hands or feet or gouging out eyes uh, it seems to me that the 12 disciples or the 11 who went on to proclaim the gospel across the world um, had all their limbs intact um, and uh, eyes uh, except possibly Paul who maybe had a problem with his eye later a thorn in the flesh as some uh, have suggested um, but he is underlining how serious the issue of sin is how seriously it should be taken uh, in our lives Uh, in the life of a christian sin sin needs to be killed uh, in your life and my life and friends you know when you've got cockroaches in your house and uh, i I remember those student days of living in cockroach of friends living in cockroach infested (laughs) flats in glasgow um, you don't you don't just kind of shut the cupboard door and hope they go away because they don't. You have to kill them. You have to eradicate them. Uh, you don't deal with cancer by tolerating a little bit of it. You need to totally destroy it or it may destroy you. And so too with sin in your life. You don't, just, you don't tolerate sin in your life. You have to kill it. You have to destroy it. You have to be ruthless with it. And that's why Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, tells us, for example, in, verse, in Ephesians 4.22, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, there's, there's the renovative work that God wants to do in our lives. Um, in restoring in us true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. But it involves killing sin. So that's what the Christian life must look like, that a person who's come to Jesus in wholehearted trust and faith and has been received and has been accepted and had their sins forgiven, all those sins have been dealt with. That person now becomes someone who is marked by a desire to avoid personal sin and to avoid causing others to sin at all all costs. To pursue holiness and righteousness in life with that uh, in in faith. And if I may put it theologically, um, justification, your justification and your sanctification always go together. Because both depend upon you being united to to the one Jesus Christ. And he is our sanctification. He is our righteousness. And if you're going to become, if you're going to become righteous, you're also going to become holy. If you're a truly converted believer, uh, with joy at sins forgiven, it always goes with a desire for sin's eradication in my life. Because I know Jesus and I love him. So finally, uh, moving from a negative motive, the reality of hell uh, and the seriousness of sin, 
we come to a positive note in his last few verses. And here we see how knowing how important it is to know how much your father values and loves uh, loves you. These last few verses, 10 to 14, uh, show us just how these so-called little ones have the attention, the full attention of God, God the Father. Uh, because we first see this in verse verse 10. Um, verse 10 says, See to it that you do not despise these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father. Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, no, that's a curious thing to read, isn't it? Um, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus doesn't just uh, point to the existence of angels who are messengers. That's the meaning of the word angel, messenger. Um, and you may remember that Jesus was ministered to by angels after his 40 days in the desert back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, so angels are messengers and they're ministers. They, they seem to uh, work in ways to, to help and serve uh, Jesus and and God's people. But more detail comes out in this, this little verse. Um, and the curious thing about this verse, I think, is, is that where Jesus seems uh, says that these little ones have their angels. You see? They have their angels. Now, we need to think carefully about that because the Roman Catholic Church have taken that verse as the basis for the notion of guardian angels. You know, everybody's got their guardian angel. Um, now, I have to say that the, the Reformers didn't agree with that. Uh, John Calvin thought the justification for this was weak, though he did make this point, that angels are committed on the whole to the care of the whole church. Uh, it's a wonderful way that uh, God provides for us. He brings uh, he uses angels to bring uh, his help. But I think the point being made here is not that angels guard believers so much as that they bring the plight of believers before the face of God. It's one of the ways that God uh, works in relationship to the created order to, to bring knowledge of what's happening before his face. And so what we can learn from this is that God the Father is continually aware of the needs of his people in every circumstance. It's not that God is absent. It's not that God is distracted and away somewhere else and there's, there's no way you can get in touch with him because his angels are constantly ministering to his little ones and are constantly bringing their needs before God so that they can then supply what, what we need. And that's a wonderful truth for every believer, isn't it? Which leads us into this little parable uh, about uh, where Jesus tells about the, the one stray sheep and the 99 who are left behind on the mountainside. And Jesus' point here is that he knows who are his. God knows, God the Father knows who are his, his little ones. And such is his knowledge about them that he cares deeply when one of them goes astray. And this is the amazing thing about this passage. God takes the initiative 
to seek out his straying sheep. He acts first. He is at work to draw his sheep back into the fold. He doesn't sit waiting with his arms folded until you satisfy his high demands. That would be the way of the Pharisee, wouldn't it? Uh, These so-called righteous men. No, God does not wait for little ones to come to him. He takes the initiative and goes out to find them. And this is where we come back to the first point that we we dealt with earlier, where where there needed to be a, a turning and a humbling. And one could, when I was working through that first point, you could maybe hear that wrongly and say, oh, there's another thing I've got to do. I've got to turn, I've got to, got to humble myself. Um, I have to find my way to God by adopting these postures. But the closing verse shows us this, that the underpinning of all our responding to God is that more fundamental work of God in the terms of the parable of taking the risk to leave behind the 99, to go and seek out the one who has strayed away, to go and find the lost sinner. And so we can say, what a God we have. That at the point where I am responding and turning, And being humbled before God is the point where we realize God has come for us. And it is the most appropriate response in the face of this holy God. And loving God, who has the full attention, his full attention on his children. Now, how does God do that? How does God do all these things? Well, for that, you need to look at the one who's telling the parable. You need to look at Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is the very means by which God seeks and finds his lost sheep. The one who is standing before them is the one who, is, who will die for the sins of his father's sheep, for his lost sheep. He is the one through whom forgiveness can come. He is the one who will rise from the dead. He is the one from whom the Holy Spirit comes into the world. He is the one who then works through his spirit in the ministry of the word to draw people out. He is the one who calls people out from their lostness, back to him, the good shepherd, back home, as it were. He has taken the risk. He has taken all the cost so that he can save his people. And so we can look at this passage and say, what an amazing God we have. What a, at the same time, a terrifying God. Amazing because out of love he pursues his own people. Terrifying because we may fear to, to be found, that, for him to find that we are sinners. And maybe because we've got used to being lost and we actually quite like it. But, but for many of us, for many, many of us in this church and many churches across the country and throughout the centuries, we've found that there's no need to be terrified. Rather, we found a God to be the most loving, kind, good, gracious God with his arms open wide to his little children. He is out there looking for his children, his lost ones. And he's calling them to come to him because he loves them. Friends, this is an amazing passage. It's, uh, as we come to a close, 
I just ask you this morning, is there anyone with us today who's beginning to sense that God is after you? That God is pursuing you. He's calling out to you. Do you know, you should take comfort from this. It is his great joy for you to turn and come to him. It is a time of great rejoicing in heaven when somebody does. He is delighted when his children come to him. And how do we know that he thinks this way? Well, it's here in this passage, verse 13. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 who never went astray. What a wonderful thing. But elsewhere, let me finish with a a quote from one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Zephaniah 3.17. You should learn it. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for your lost sheep. Thank you that you're in the business of finding your sheep and giving them to your son, that your son may save them. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who brings the word of God, the Father, and who effects that work of salvation, that turning and humbling. And we pray, Father, that that would be true of all who listen this morning, who have joined us in this service. We pray that you'd turn us to yourself in great joy, seeing how great a Saviour we have and how great a Father we have. In, his, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.